0: Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we investigate football violence. It's on the rise. It's been examined by our very own Matt Lawton. We'll also discuss West Ham United's response to their player Kurt Zuma's animal cruelty and discuss the big stories in this week's Premier League football, including what's next for Manchester United. This is The Game. Hello and welcome back to The Game. I am Hugh Woosencroft. Joining me this morning to begin the podcast, Tom Clark and Matt Lawton, our chief sports correspondent. The Times has been documenting the experiences of those who have to deal with the aftermath of the football mob, which seems to be returning in the game at the moment, doesn't it? We've seen a rise in football violence inside and outside grounds. We've seen players pelted with missiles, the intimidation of staff on travel services and inside stadia and police as well, violence directed towards them. And we wanted to examine the causes and effects. Well, our chief sports correspondent, Matt Lawton, has spent time with those in the middle of this. He's documented it as a film. He's written a big article. You can see it in The Times or on The Times app right now. Matt, tell us about the journey that you've been on investigating
1: this. Well, it started with having a chat with Mark Roberts, who's the head of football policing. And I did a piece with him for The Times um, a week and a half ago. But during those conversations, I was giving thought to these statistics that had come out um, that had been issued by the UK football policing unit about this rise, as you you just mentioned, 50% rise in arrests. Uh, across football, um, significant rise in violence and disorder. So I said, well, look, what's the chances of actually going with your officers to a couple of games to see for ourselves just what they're having to deal with? So they suggested two matches in um, in Nottingham, Notts County Grimsby on the Saturday and Nottingham Forest versus Leicester City in the FA Cup on the Sunday. And the reason they suggested those games, one, because they expected them to be problematic but also because there are in the UK one of the things that was really interesting that I didn't know was that every football club in the country has a dedicated football officer and these guys are almost like community police officers and they'll actually spend half of their week visiting homes of kids that they've seen at the weekend and sitting down with their parents and saying do you realise that your 14-year-old son is hanging out with some pretty bad company at the weekend? And on a lot of occasions, they don't even realise they've got on a train to another city in the country to watch a football match. It's quite scary, really. But they have these two dedicated national officers, PC Stuart Dickerson and um, Wayne Mitchell. So I spent the weekend with them on the front line, if you like, seeing for myself what, uh, what they were dealing with. We started on Saturday morning with the arrival of Grimsby fans at Nottingham Station. And they, uh, one of the things that came out of the Casey report, um, you know, the report that looked into what happened at Wembley at the European Championship final last summer was the cocaine use that they think is a problem that is fueling some of this disorder. You know, alcohol as well, obviously, and obviously just general badness. But um, we arrived and one of the first operations they had, it was called Operation Wolfgang, was using sniffer dogs to see just if these guys were turning up mm. with Class A drugs and it proved to be the case. that They created this checkpoint as they came off the platform. The dogs were there. And what we found was that um, once they'd all gone through and some of them were stopped, you know, the dogs obviously responded as they would do if they thought they could sense uh, mm-hmm. presence of drugs, was that they had dumped bags of cocaine on the platform. And the, once they'd all gone, the the, coca- the the platform was just covered in little bags of cocaine. It really? was extraordinary.
0: How did you find the experience? Because it wasn't just that that you saw. There, there was, on both days, was there um, elements of violence. We've even seen videos on social media in yeah. Nottingham. Um,
1: were you nearby? Did you experience any of it? Well, on the on the Saturday at when Grimsby scored their late winner... The, the, it's in the film that the fans are singing that if they if they score the winning goal they're gonna they're gonna storm the pitch, which which is an offence in itself. Um, they're seeing more and more of that this season, and and a lot of young kids. The police were saying that are actually getting onto the pitch to get shirts and almost being encouraged in some cases by parents because they're young, they don't think they'll get in any trouble, and they'll they'll get the star player's shirt. But it's a problem. But no, they did, and and they did score the winning goal because <laughs> they won a free kick, which prompted the chant we were stood right there and, and, and they stormed this area and it was where all the disabled supporters were sitting, you know, people sitting there in wheelchairs and suddenly they're completely engulfed by this crowd and people got hurt. Steward, the stewards did an amazingly valiant job to stop them but people got hurt and there was a lady I would say in her 50s or 60s who was a steward who was led away past her. she had a broken nose you know, so so that was on the Saturday. On the Sunday um, we we started the day at at the railway station, because there were known one of the things that again, it sounds naive, doesn't it, Hugh? Because we go to these games, we've been to thousands of matches as journalists. I didn't realise these the baby squad at Leicester was still existed. This crew that's been written about in books in yeah, about football yeah. hooliganism that dates back. I think it was founded in 1981. Uh, the the Forest Executive Crew, but at the police sort of strategy meeting in the morning, they were actually talking about those two crews about known members of those crews and they were talking about the fact they had intelligence that they were indeed planning to meet. The two teams hadn't played since 2014 Mm. and they were planning to meet somewhere unspecified in the city centre. So we started at the train station, but the dedicated football officer for Leicester soon became aware that once the first few trains had come in, they hadn't come on the train. So they were thinking right they've they've come in another way they've they've got minibuses and then suddenly they get the call it's fighting has broken outside this pub as, as you know as we turned up it, it's total carnage as the as the videos on social media show show that, that there were people eating their sunday lunch in this pub and leicester city fans are throwing tables and chairs through the windows like it was horrific and at that point we you know we're there and um and then we we're, we're, we're sort of following the police on the other side of the line of the police as they're trying to shepherd these guys into a controllable group and and move them back towards the ground and towards the train station
0: what about the people that you met um on the other side of it the the the, the, the rail workers the the police uh, the people that work at the football
1: clubs what are their feelings about this well i tried to speak to the to, to the rail staff but we were actually stopped they said that we had to go through the press office mm-hmm. of the of east midlands railway but the fact is the second train that came in, the second Grimsby train that came in, was so badly trashed that they had to take it out of service. They literally had to take it off to the sidings. It was, there was broken glass. There was use of, uh, of of drugs. There was beer everywhere. Some of the seats were sodden with urine. It was horrendous. And as we stood there, that the staff got off, and it was a it was a woman who was the rail who was that train manager, and she was shaking. She was visibly shaking and had to be comforted by staff. She just had a horrendous hour and 45 minutes on that train and it was yeah it was terrible and there were other people getting off. We saw each other didn't we mm. at the end of the day. and the train that left that night, I watched um, I watched fans getting back on to a train that was going back to Grimsby and they actually they wouldn't let the people that were already on the train off. And this, this horrendous crush developed and eventually a mother with two kids, they were actually going to watch the ice hockey, finally got off the train and the two kids, I think the daughter was probably about 13, the son was 10 or 11, they were both in tears. Absolutely horrific experience.
2: Matt, one of the things that comes across watching the film and it is extraordinary is something that I've seen going to football quite a lot where you have these fans who kind of clearly aren't interested in the football at all. It's a vehicle for this kind of day out and for violence. You know, I'd been on a train before coming back from a Lincoln game where there were some away supporters and they'd lost. Lincoln had actually beaten them in the last minute, but the last minute goal had caused a bit of a scrap with some stewards and this away fans were talking about, oh, it was a mint day. Did you see me smack that steward? Yeah, I got him right in the face. Uh, It's brilliant. I was thinking, if I was leaving the ground and my team had just lost in the last minute, I'd be absolutely gutted. Did you get that sense that a lot of these fans, and you know, if you watch your film, it's this big swarm of people who get off the train. Did you get the sense that they were there for the football in any sense other than for this kind of
1: violent, aggressive kind of day out? Some definitely weren't. And and look, we should stress that I spent the weekend in Nottingham. Mm-hmm. 95% of the people there are behaving the way you want them to. Yep. It's mums and dads, it's kids, they buy their chips, they buy their burgers, they have their beers, and it's a lovely day out. The concern here is that this minority is growing and it's actually starting to make it unpleasant to go again. So if you are taking your son and you encounter these groups, it's really, really intimidating. But the point is, Tom, when they so when they shepherded these Leicester fans, what was really interesting was that as they started to move them through the city... Um, Stuart, Stuart Dickerson Dickinson said to me we think a lot of these fans haven't got tickets mm. so what they did is it was quite clever policing they created this funnel when they got back to the station and they made all of them walk through it and it was literally created by officers vehicles horses and there was probably a hundred of these guys, 25% of them didn't have tickets. Mm. Now, what the police do then is they have something called a section thirty-five dispersal order and they put them back they put them on a train back to Leicester. Mm. But the point was they didn't have a ticket, they were just in Nottingham for mm. a tear-up, mm. they were just in Nottingham to fight the forest fans that were up for a up for a scrap. And, you know, they don't wear colours. It, that was also interesting. I, I kind of knew that, you know, been covering football for 30 years, but they don't wear colours. They all look the same. It's, it's a uniform. And they are they are there for the, for, for the tear-up. They're not there to watch the football match. Mm.
2: The other thing that strikes me, both going to games, and again, it was crystallised in your video, is the age. And you've touched on this briefly already, but there's a brilliant, not brilliant, but it's a very um, powerful shot in the video that's going to be on the Times website later of a big group of people and the age of some of the kind of kids who are being the most larry, you know, they they look about 11, 12. I mean, is that something that the
1: police are concerned about? They're massively concerned about that. And that was the thing that really struck me. And I, I guess, as a parent, it struck me, you know, I've got four mm. kids. And I was like, my. God what are they doing here but without mm. their mums and dads mm. the idea that they're 12 or 13 years old like one of the officers said, said to said to me the guy that's the forest DFO said to me they don't realize that their 13 14 year old son is hanging out with these 40 and 50 year olds they don't know they don't know these 40 or 50 mm. year olds and these guys are carrying drugs sometimes they're getting these kids to carry their drugs for them really because they they think there's less chance of them getting searched mm-hmm. but the, the, it's it's a massive safeguarding issue, and 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 you know, it's not just their age, Tom. A lot of them were drunk, mm. and this was at half ten in the morning. Yeah, and you know, look, I know we all you know probably snuck into our first pub at mm. 16, yeah. 17 but they're younger than that. Yeah, and they're and they're on the booze, and part of the as I touched on it at the start, one of the things that they they do these DFOS, one of the really interesting stories that. Stuart Dickerson told me was that when he was the, before he became the national um, football police officer, he worked at Portsmouth. And at one stage went down at Portsmouth, they got 35 lads in to the Mm -hmm. ground with their mums and dads and basically said to them all, guys, your your sons are going to go off the rails here. Mm -hmm. Like they are hanging out with some bad company. They are behaving very badly at the weekends when they come into matches. You've, there's there needs to be an intervention here, mm. and actually, S- Stuart said that of the thirty five, thirty four of them were never in trouble again. Really, and and he gets emails now. He had a he had an email from his parents saying, "Just to let you know, my son started at Loughborough University today. Thank you so much for it. look. They don't always get it right. The police, we know that. There's there's stories all over the papers about issues with the police, but I have to say. Having spent the weekend with these dedicated football officers, I think it's a really important job they do, and and a big part of that community policing is targeting these kids, and they're trying to stop them developing into what they fear they could become.
0: Well, they're being groomed, aren't they? They're being groomed into violence, mm. and and um, what? Who knows what else in terms of criminal behaviour? Um, I I I I find this, of course, as a football fan, very interesting, and we know that these elements exist within football it's interesting you know because I was travelling with England in the last uh, qualifying campaign. And there are a few countries that have had that element of nationalism, um, even fascism in, in the fan base that supports their country. Of course, we saw what happened with Bulgaria, Hungary. We know the political issues there. There are political issues in Poland as well. Actually, when I went to Warsaw with Poland, you know, it was of course, you always get asked when you go on these away trips with England, as I'm sure you do, is there going to be a sense of violence? We know that taking a knee is an issue as well, which makes it, it almost come to the fore um, in other parts of the world. And of course, they the The England players were booed very strongly in Poland, but during the National Anthem, when certain parts of the crowd started to boo the uh, English National Anthem, um, there was a massive round of applause and people got to their feet and the vast majority of the stadium tried to drown them out with with positivity. And I was asking the Polish journalist, having seen what happened in Hungary and Poland, how comes It didn't. You didn't have. It was very much a family feel in Poland. What was the difference? And they were saying we had these elements for really as badly as you did in England in the eighties and nineties. People that had tried to take over football. That's what they've realised in Bulgaria. It's not football fans. It's it's nationalists and fascists trying to use football as a way of bringing people into their cause. And that's why they they almost come in a big gang and they're trying to draw people who like football who maybe don't have support networks around them into doing what they do and into their beliefs. But Poland said that basically they had put so much work, two decades of work in, maybe similar to what you're describing, to make sure those elements hadn't taken over football. Mm. They still exist in the country, but they are being kept away from football grounds. And I think that's something that we're going to have to start thinking about here much more strongly.
1: Well, I wrote some articles this time last year, Hugh, and it was about a group very much like what you've just described at Brentford, and it was prompted by other Brentford fans contacting me and basically saying there are there are guys in our in our midst, racist, far right tendencies, you know, really offensive stuff on social media, Nazi stuff, you know, Nazi references, mm. like, horrific stuff, and and they were making it increasingly unpleasant to travel away with Brentford. Now on the back of some of those articles, some of the Brentford fans. Uh, receive bans and from the club and, and so on. The problem is that, and again, this is one of the other things that the police were talking about, was there needs to be more of a joined-up approach to that because it's all very well a club banning somebody for being racist. But if the police don't know about it, because they've got these spotters, and I tell you what, they are eagle-eyed, these guys. like mm. I had a coin thrown at me, because, and I think it was thrown at me because they saw me actually directing Alex the cameraman saying over there over there mm. and suddenly this missile flies past me hits the wall next to me and and the, off- the officer goes did you see that and I said I did but how did you see that because you you know they're, they're, they're really sharp and tuned mm. in but the point is I think some of these fans that get banning orders from clubs still go to away matches and so on and are still going around the country causing problems and there needs to be an information Yeah, I do think one of the things that Inspector Craig Berry said to me was that they're actually doing a lot of this stuff at the request of the silent majority football fans proper football fans want to want to clamp down on this because there is exactly what you're talking about and and it's really worrying and we're seeing it aren't we not just in football it's across society we're seeing this far right kind of you know tendencies political views uh, racism we're seeing it growing again across, not just in the UK, but across Europe, in the States. And it's often football is an extension of society, and it's really starting to grow again in football. And it is just, it's something that the police need to work with the football authorities, need to work with the fans groups, and, and just try and suppress this again. It's just, it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable to tear up a train to the point where they've got to take it out of service and, and subjecting not just the staff on that train, but the passengers to that kind of experience when they're just trying to travel to Nottingham for a, day, for a day at the shops.
2: We should say as well, and Matt, you've hinted at this already, that there are lots of football fans who perhaps fit this kind of ca- characteristic that we're building of young, passionate, but who don't get involved in this kind totally, of stuff. yeah. You know? And they do actually work with police, don't they? I yeah. mean, I at the playoff final, the Lincoln playoff final, I was quite struck by how there were two moments of... First Blackpool fans, then Lincoln fans, who were kind of considered the the hardcore, if you like, yeah. and they clearly timed it and worked with police so that they could walk up Wembley Way, singing and chanting and things yeah. like that. And there were a couple of guys who were part of like the Lincoln supporters group who were kind of stood at the front with police, yeah. walking up, going, "No, stay in line, lads. Come on, let's play the game. We can have our moment of going. We're going to win, you bloody tossers! Da da da!" And the police will be fine. Let's not kick off. And they and the police. They're, you know they're happy with that aren't they they' yeah. they're happy to work with football fans in that respect
1: yeah no the, 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 that that is the point you know just just as I just said it was Brentford fans who alerted me to the stories at Brentford last year mm. yeah it was other fans yeah and and the fact is when you're walk in with those community officers at the grounds, the fans know them yeah You know, they they know them because they're at every game. So it's like, you know, you're following Dave, for instance, who's the Leicester City guy. Mm. And, uh, you know, you're walking through the concourse and, uh, right, Dave, all right, Dave, all right, Dave. Mm -hmm. But then occasionally, and it happened on on Sunday, I heard somebody go, grass. Mm. So that was one of the nasty guys that doesn't appreciate the work that Dave's trying to do, Mm. which is actually to try and make it a nicer experience for everyone. And it was the same with Simon, the forest guy. You're right, Simon. You're right, Simon. Mm. And people were stopping the street. Some of them, you know, we walked into a bar during the day. It was actually, <laughs> it was quite a funny moment because we walked into this bar, and and this fan, Leicester fan, greeted Dave like his best mate, big hug. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. And then about two hours later, he'd obviously had a couple more pints, and we're walking past the same bar with the. The Leicester guys that have just been tearing up this pub, mm. and the same guy is out now outside the pub cheering them on, mm-hmm. and then suddenly he sees that Dave's staring right at him, <laughs> and his sort of embarrassment. Oh, so, sorry, sorry, Dave, Dave. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> goes back, goes back in the pub, and it was. But that, as I say, that for me is the is is good policing, mm, yeah. And, and and as I say, I was the one thing I was encouraged by was that most fans are pleased to see them yeah
0: Matt thank you so much for uh, coming in and discussing all of that with us It, it is a really serious issue as you've highlighted and if you want to know more about it check it out on the times app right now the investigation is called cocaine violence and kids as young as 12 the new face of football hooliganism you can see that fantastic video on the times app as well so make sure you do check it out Now there have been some interesting results at the bottom of the table over the past few days. Most notably for me, Frank Lampard's return to the Premier League manager's dugout. He took his side, Everton side, of course, to Newcastle and was dismissed 3-1. And what felt like a pretty important evening for the Magpies fans. Our chief football writer Henry Winter was there. Hi, Henry. How significant a result did this feel for Newcastle inside St James's Park?
3: well it was very significant in terms of that it dragged Everton back into the mire it was an important win but I think it was more the sort of tone it set you just saw Anna Sam Maximum I mean uh, you know Shamus Coleman is a good experienced defender and he really struggled to keep up with him um, I think it helped that Matt Target it slotted in for his debut at left back and he's a sort of very defensive you know he's not a Denier type player but he's more sort of defensive and that allows Sam Maximum to sort of bomb forward so I think that was good but for me the tone was set by Kieran Trippy on the the right uh, at right back he's not captain LaSalle's, but Trippier just sets the tone in terms of his pressing getting forward you saw the free kick at the end he brings so much and it was weird hearing some people sort of saying he's 31 he's just going in there for the money if you've met Kieran Trippier if you've looked at his career you know that he isn't driven purely by money i know it's probably 80 90 for, for for most footballers I understand that but Trippier, there's something about being a winner being in a team giving value to his teammates and to, to those amazing fans at newcastle so i think it was about setting the tone for the next few months as well as you know the winning the three points on the night
0: i was surprised by frank lampard in the build-up to this game he sort of played it down as a relegation six-pointer, but maybe he should have because I think his team played like they were about 15 points above the relegation (laughs) zone. You could see what he was trying to do Patience on the ball, um, uh, an element of possession, but they lack the intensity of a game of this magnitude for their survival.
3: I mean, they lack a forward focal point in Calvert Lewin. I think when he was on the bench, but when he's fully fit and and sharp, they're a different team because he will bring out the best of the sort of the creative talent around them. I think Anthony Gordon, who's playing almost as a sort of inside right, I thought he was he was excellent, and you can see how he's responding to Frank Lampard. But I think that you know there were individual issues on the night, losing Yeri Mina. I don't think Lascelles would necessarily have got that header if Mina hadn't uh, had been uh, injured. Losing Damari Gray, who's been probably Everton's in their top two, three players this season. That was sort of unfortunate early on. But then when Deli Ali and Donny van der Beek came on, Dele Alli still looks way off the, the mm. pace. He needs to get back up to understandably because he's, he's ring rusty. So look, it'd be good to see a Dele Alli sort of moving towards his, you know, his, his best form if he can. But uh, I agree with you. I think it's uh, Everton are in a dogfight now. And they've got, I was at, uh, I saw the Leeds game last night and, uh, I just saw the sort of some of the lead staff as I walked out and I said, you know, be gentle with Frank Lampard on the weekend because they're, they're playing Everton. And there's so much racked up on that game because of the tension, long-standing tension going back to Derby between Lampard and uh, and, and Leeds. So that will be a lively one. So I agree with you. It's, it's tricky for Everton at the moment.
0: Let's talk about that brilliant game you watched at Villa Park then. Aston Villa 3, Leeds 3. It was that old cliche, uh, great for the neutral. The managers would have been tearing their hair out though. How much did you enjoy it?
3: I loved it I mean it's I love watching Leeds I just think even without three of their best players in in Liam Cooper Calvin Phillips and Patrick Bamford they just give everything I mean look at Dan James I mean Dan James came in from Manchester United people were saying you know well not good enough for Manchester United they've got all this quality out why and then you just think what he's done for, for, for Leeds maybe he's got a point to prove he's obviously flourishing with, with Wales but he's been played through the middle and he was up against Ezri Konsa and Tyro Mings who are hardly shrinking violets when they come to challenges. You know, there are no slouches in the air either. And Dan James was sort of competing with them airily. Obviously, his pace getting in behind was, was fantastic. And I think the great thing for Leeds is that they came away with a deserved point, probably could have got more in terms of their performance in the second half on a night when Rapina, who's been probably their most consistently creative player over the last 18 months, actually had for him one of his quieter games. So, look, Leeds is always a, a, a joy to watch. There's a there's just a fantastic work ethic to them. We all know about this or the sort of murder ball that Marceau Biella demands from them in training. And Scott, even talking about murder ball and what they go through, I can't even get my words out. This is absolutely absolutely brutal what they do. They just sort of dive in, they throw the balls in. It's just, it's no holds barred. And they play like that. It's high octane and they're just a joy to watch.
0: A couple of Villa players stood out though. Um, Jacob Ramsey, a youngster who has been tipped after the game for greatness by his manager, Stephen Gerrard, which would be huge for him.
3: I was talking to one of the, the Villa staff beforehand, so I've been... You know, like everyone's been saying really impressed with Ramsey particularly under Gerrard he said yeah he's just a sort of nice homely kid lives at home very down to earth 20 academy product you know and a great a sort of advertisement for them but also he's one of those players who you just know is going to train on under Stephen Gerrard because of where Gerrard used to play and you just look at Ramsey sort of bombing forward like that I mean he's he's Gerald has created a good platform for him in terms of you've got Douglas Luiz sort of holding and McGinn creative but also being a little bit more defensively minded and Ramsey's just allowed to bomb forward and you look at the talent that he's got that he's running into particularly in terms of Buendia and especially now Coutinho I mean they're they're just good little link-ups all over the the pitch so they'll probably be frustrated that they let a 3-1 lead slip Villa. But with Ramsey, wow, they've got a fantastic player for the future.
0: What more do you think we can get from Coutinho from here on out? Because he, he showed last night that that's that great player, that great Premier League player in particular, is still in there.
3: One goal and two assists, that threaded pass, the way he spun away from Aileen, I think it was for the, for the second, for Ramsey's first goal and threaded the ball through. You know, it was... Ailing is a, is a good defender. He was marking him tightly. But Coutinho was sort of kind of starting on the left and sort of moving in inside. And Leeds struggled to sort of deal with his movement, also for his goal. Good cutback from uh, from Matty Cash. And Coutinho just sort of stopped his run, faded his run, got the ball, and then obviously technically when he's got a split second, he, he can do such damage. So I think they'll get more and more from him as well. I think still think they need to sort of blend that... Watkins through the middle, and he's 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 a fantastic player. And I just think that Gerald the more he works with them the body more Heath, the, the the more he'll come on. But Coutinho's got a point to prove. You know, he went to went from Liverpool. Uh, to uh, to Barcelona for a huge fee there was a lot of hype around him he had issues with injuries there were tactical issues as well in terms of uh, the speed in which uh, Barcelona wanted to, to move the ball and obviously had Messi in there as well so there were sort of tactical reasons but also it's about personal responsibility and about seizing the moment and now Gerard, who is so good with man management and also in terms of setting up a tactical framework for a creative talent like uh, Coutinho he's got to deliver now consistently and uh, as we've seen so far so excitingly he's already started
2: Henry it was a thrilling game that as you kind of hinted at showed the best bits for both um, both teams really but they're both in interesting positions in that you know this is the start of the new Villa under Steven Gerrard whilst Leeds always have the cloud of Bielsa will he stay won't he stay Where where do you see them both going as clubs in the next year or so?
3: Upwards I just think that when Leeds get their, um, you know, three of their most important players back, I just think that they will they'll kick on again. I think that uh, I mean you can still look at Leeds' defence and just say, is it still a Championship defence? Does it need more? But the joy of Leeds is is in their is in their attacking. They've got one or two good kids coming through as well. It'd be nice to see maybe them get get a get a, get, get a chance. You looked at the bench last night, and it was it was quite young in part. Um, but Villa I mean Gerald is okay I'm biased to help write his book you know a couple of well a few years ago Uh, but I just it's funny because that generation that England generation particularly the Liverpool generation the feeling was always that it would be Jamie Carragher who went on because of his personality because of his obsession with the minutiae of football that would go on into management and he's obviously gone and been a brilliant pundit and Gerard, you, you just wondered, because Gerard's actually, it may not appear, but he's, I mean, he'd admit it himself, he's a slightly sort of reserved character. And can you be reserved manager when you have to be you know you have to be the lightning conductor for all the sort of heat on the team and yet he's been absolutely outstanding from the word go at Rangers he's personality and just little sort of technical things that he does like at Rangers he moved the players table tennis table nearer to his office so he could just lean over the sort of balcony and shout up to a player if he wanted to come up and have a chat or he could join in with the banter he's very clever and little things like moving the analyst's room so that the players would walk through it when they came in through the entry. Corridor. They walk through the analyst room to get into the to, to the changing room at, at the training ground, so they could have a word with the uh, with the analyst in a fairly sort of low key setting, rather than a sort of come in and we'll go through you know the clips from last night or whatever. So little things like that. He's a real thinker about the game. You know what he was like as a player. He was so driven thought a lot about the game and worked under managers. You know, when I went in there, he was, you know, when I went into his, his office, all he wanted to do was talk about Gerard Hulier and how much he meant to him as a, as a man, as a mentor and as a manager. So, you know, he's learned obviously under Rafa Benitez, whose man management was nowhere near Hulier's level or Gerard's level, but tactically, as we saw in Istanbul in 2005, the halftime changes was brilliant. So, you know, he's he's learnt from outstanding and very different managers and now he's imposing his own views. And you can see a Gerrard team. You looked at Rangers, you looked at Villa last night, and you say, yeah, you can see the imprint of Stephen Gerrard on those eleven players.
0: West Ham's Kurt Zuma has been fined two weeks' wages. The RSPCA have removed his two cats while they investigate a video of him kicking and hitting the animals after it was posted on social media, reportedly by his brother at West Ham, said they completely condemned Zuma's actions and then punished him by giving him a place in their starting 11 for the game against Watford that same evening. Manager David Moyes uh, said he's one of our best players when explaining why he was selected and said the club would deal with the discipline side of things, resulting in a statement on their website the following day, explaining his fine. Jonathan Northcroft joins us now on the game. Hi, Jonathan. I thought personally that that it was a disgraceful act from Kurt Zuma, but it was actually compounded in the end by West Ham's reaction. What was your view?
4: I would say there's no, there's no sort of question. It was, it was a horrible, horrific video to watch. Uh, Incomprehensibly cruel, and you know, yeah, it's a, it's appalling. I think also uh, David Moyes is appalled, West Ham are appalled, and perhaps the decision to select him in hindsight was a mistake, and and maybe hasn't sort of reflected the 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 feelings at the club. But I do I do feel I feel they probably got it wrong by selecting him. But I also feel we're in a very strange and difficult. Kind of position now with footballers because their responsibility is to their employee and to their to their, their club, and I think in the old days we would accept that there's a there's a process that you follow, which is that you um, you investigate an incident, you let the law run its course, and you allow someone to be innocent till proven guilty. But we live in a different age now where things move much more quickly because of social media and there's more of an appetite. Um, to to see instant punishment, he has been fined almost quarter of a million pounds. He has been disciplined, um, and while the police and the RSPCA do their business, um, you know West Ham will f- fall into line and and possibly do more. On, you know after that, I just think they've they they, they misread the mood and reacted slowly. Um, but I don't think it reflects anything like West Ham or David Moyes in particular taking it lightly I think you know I, I'm, I'll am i put my cards on the table I, I, I've known David for years and he's one of the most decent men in football one of the most moral men in football sadly you know to allow to allow the situation has allowed people to say he put, he put you know points above anything else and that that isn't David Moyes that is not the that is not the guy who's been a management for 20 years and as I say he's been one of the most decent, cleanest managers you could you could possibly see. But I, I do feel we're in a strange position now where um there's a, a huge cl- instant clamour because of social media, because of public mood for punishment. And I'm not sure what where the perspective is. You know, Mikel Antonio has made a very eloquent point I think today on on on, on when interviewing Sky Sports News about about racism and just saying we've allowed footballers to play on, remain captains having been convicted of racism and now we're saying this guy has to be banned and stripped and whatever and got rid of um, for animal cruelty that's not saying animal cruelty that's not making any equivalence It's it's just trying to point out that we're in a kind of I think an inconsistent sort of almost trial by public. But I um, I I understand that, I things. understand
0: that argument, but that argument is one for Kurt Zuma being suspended. It's just an argument for other people also being suspended sure. for doing um abhorrent oh. things. So I don't I don't yeah. I can understand where you're coming from, but I, I don't see how if West Ham had suspended him. For three or four matches, um, he, he, bear in mind. Even though it's a social media age, Kurzuma never said yeah. he didn't do it. He actually apologised for it. He said himself that it was a one-off. Um, so, he, so he actually admitted that he did it, which I think is part of yeah. it. That there wasn't much to wait for in that regard for West Ham United. Um,
4: sure, sure. But- Hugh, just to be clear, I'm not. I'm not condemning. I'm not condoning animal cruelty, and I'm not saying that. You know. <laughs> This is the difficult. I knew this. I knew immediately if I tried to voice this opinion, I'd get into the territory of "Oh, you think kicking cats is okay?" Of no, course I'm I don't. not saying that. But, I'm not saying that. But I think that I do think I do think wrote, raised that point about racism to try and illustrate The fact that, that we've been here before in football many times with really serious issues that footballers have been involved in, and hasn't actually been as instant an outcry as it is over this instant. And actually, I'm just going to leave that out there and, and mm. ask people to kind of make their own minds up. But to to use another reference point, and we were talking about it last week, David Goodwillie has played football mm. for five years since being convicted of, of rape in a civil court in Scotland. For five years, he's continued playing football. And it only became an issue when it became a huge social media public issue, thanks to... The outcry over Ray Rover's trying to sign him, and that, and, and quite rightly they, they, they didn't sign him, and quite rightly people are now condemning the fact that would gave David Goodwillies to continue to play football, but he had been doing so for five years. And mm-hmm. the point I'm trying to make is that I think we're, the heat now doesn't come necessarily from morality; the heat comes from um, a public mood that's fueled by. Um, our, in, our, our instant responses on social media. And I'm not even saying that's a wrong thing. I just think West Ham haven't caught up with that. I guess that's what I'm trying to say that they they have they, maybe not reflected where we are in the modern world. But I do I, I, I do find it difficult, even from a journalist's point of view, to kind of um, to follow this the speed of events these days and to to sort of see where where are we drawing our moral lines now in terms of who should play and who shouldn't play. Henry, what do you think?
3: I think the heat does come from morality. I think just because everyone's got a social media platform now, I think uh, that that morality, that moral compass has been embedded in a lot of people. It's just that there's a platform for it. I mean, when Johnny uses the word... and look, we all know David Moyes, and I agree with Johnny. He's, you know, he's a very commendable, principled individual. We saw the work he's he did during the, the the pandemic, delivering food and all that. You know, this is a man who's always been associated with having a good moral compass. I just think he lost it over this over this issue. And to, to actually say that with hindsight, it looked a, a mistake picking him. I mean, all the sort of phone ins before the game were going, he cannot pick him. All the journalistic conversations I had at St James's Park, I was at a different game. Everyone was saying, you know, there's no way that he can pick him. And sure enough, an hour before the, the you know, the, the match started at the London Stadium, that there was Kurt Zuma's name on it. It was Kurt Zuma is obviously totally responsible for everything that's happened. But West Ham have just handled this in in a, such a poor way. And for David Moyes to come out and say, Well, I picked him because he's one of our better players. I mean, you know, David's I mean, David's, you know, you're above that. Also because what this means then to the club, okay? So on the simple financial levels, they're gonna lose sponsors. But for Moyes and the players, and players we really admire, like you saw Declan Rice after the kid in Mr. Harry again, the work he does, Mark Noble, the work that, that he does for Help for Heroes, you know, Ben Johnson, the young player that. They've got there the work that he does on racism. That you know, there's a, they've got a fantastic foundation, some fantastic players. But also, one of the themes of this season has been almost West Ham becoming everyone's second team or probably third team after sort of Leeds because of the football they've played because they've taken the game to, to, to the wealthier elite so for them to do something like this the way they've handled it what Kurt Zuma did so disgustingly in the first place I just think it's been badly handled all round and I have to say I'm disappointed with Moyes because I thought that he would have said right I believe it. okay a Diop is maybe not the greatest of replacement but you're playing Watford at home and to actually bring a player like that in, and look I'm going to Leicester, I'm sure Johnny will be there at the, the weekend, although mm-hmm. it's a Sunday game. If he plays him again, which I think he may well do, this is just going to continue. And this is not like so certain previous issues when there's been, there has, you know, when all the sort you know, what Antonio was, was getting at, and I do sort of understand exactly what he was getting at. There was criticism of those individuals at the time, but also where Antonio, I would say, is completely right. I don't think this is a dismissal issue I mean, I know there are people campaigning to have him cancelled and all that. You know, he's made a terrible mistake. He needs to go and work in a pet refuge and see that the abuse and the cruelty which he was involved in that gets inflicted on, on pets and animals in this country. He needs to go and work on that. He needs to be taken out of the firing line. And that's obviously for West Ham for, for Moyes to do. So they've got to handle it better. He's got to show more proper contrition. And I think people will look back on this whole ferrari and think, this is how you don't handle a major issue like this. They've inflamed the whole issue. But ultimately, he's got to take more responsibility. And those poor cats, and let's come back to it, (laughs) the fact that, you know, you look at the newspapers today and all the headlines are about RSPCA um, seizing his his two cats and making sure that they're okay. That is pretty humiliating. And one final thing, (laughs) you say that he has been fined two weeks' wages. Look, he's a multimillionaire. You know, 250 grand. OK, it's a huge amount. And if there's one positive about this is that people will appreciate the work, that, the important work that the RSPCA do. The fact that over the pandemic, like so many charities, they've had a shortfall in, in income coming in. You've only got to look at their last figures to see the deficit and that. So they will be gaining money. So that is important. But really, 250 grand. To a Premier League, a footballer who's been at 27, who's been in the Premier League for a while. I think he'll be able to cope with that. He needs to go on a re-education course. He needs to go and work at a refuge. He needs to go and support the RSPCA on a longer term. And then he will be, you know, and then he can obviously carry on playing. But I do think that it, it, it's, not, it's not a dismissal. Issue this. Mm. We've got to get away from this, and this is where Mikel Antonio was right. Not everything is a dismissal issue, but it's been compounded by the fact that he wasn't taken out of the firing line immediately.
0: West Ham's almost inaction has left it now almost to the FA to Im- investigate and possibly uh, give a, 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 I don't know how many match suspension, but you do feel as if um the two weeks fine two weeks wages fine is is not suitable punishment and we can talk about all the other things that happen and the other punishments handed out but we are meant to be evolving and it's great to look back in the past at mistakes and say well what about way back when but i don't think we would react now the same way that we w- we did then to those events and, and i think we have moved on so i don't know i don't know what you two guys think maybe you johnny first nope. should the fa investigate nope.
4: No, I, I think that's I think that's fair here I mean I, I did cite some of those racism incidents which I do think would be handled differently now I do think I, I do think that's we, we, we've we've moved on and as, and as Henry says we've we've all got a, a stronger moral compass and ways of expressing it because of social media yes the FA should investigate a, it seems like a clear disrepute um, thing the police are investigating I think West I would I would fully expect. Tomorrow, when David Moyes speaks to the media, West Ham to to having had a bit of time to give us a much more satisfactory reflection of their position, and I I think Kurt Zuma above all has the I mean just for the sake of his own career, um, and for you know for the for the the sake of <laughs> the distress he's caused to to everyone and not least his own pets I suppose, but he needs to he needs to come out and and convince us. Um, somehow that he's he's sorry that he's going to learn from this and that he understands the seriousness of what he's done and, and he, he's there's a lot of responsibility for on his part now and I don't think players can have it both ways and, and and want to have profile on social media and then not use it and hide when something like this happens so I think I think he he above all else has got to to, to, to try and do something um, that that is convincing. Um, I just, I, I, I just go back to the point. I, I think that there's 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 there's, there's this is, this is a timing issue that, that, that West Ham have, have been caught on the hop a bit, and you know, give them a chance, give give David Moyes a chance. That, 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 that uh, you know David Moyes is not the the person that, that that's been portrayed in the last sort of twenty four hours uh, in terms of being the amoral football manager. He really isn't, and I don't think West Ham are that club anymore either. I do think West Ham have, have changed as a football club. So, you know, once the heat goes out of this, maybe we can we can see it in the round. And I, I expect and I hope there'll be different sort of action and a different tone taken over the next few days.
0: Elsewhere in the Premier League this week, Norwich and Burnley picked up points. We do have more games to come, by the way. Wilfred Zaha with the worst penalty you will ever see having just scored a wonder goal. Uh, from the subri- sublime to the ridiculous for him. Palace couldn't secure the win at Carrow Road, so an important point for Dean Smith's side. Also in that relegation battle, events at Turf Moor, Burnley won, Manchester United won. Val um, Veghorst, Tom Clark, he could be the the man that inspires Burnley's survival.
2: Yeah, he could be. I'm not 100% convinced that he's enough, I've got to say. I, as much as I've defended my Burnley boys as my second team I increasingly find myself watching them and thinking they've left themselves too much to do and you mentioned Norwich I found myself see, like watching Norwich and they have the kind of intensity under Dean Smith that I feel like Burnley have lacked at times and still do a little bit I, I could be wrong course could be the kind of figurehead in every sense Um both physically uh, and symbolically to lead Burnley out of out of the relegation places, but I just start to wonder whether they've left themselves too much to do. And teams like Norwich have already got a head start. Newcastle, as you as we've discussed, have been brilliant. Um, so I'm starting to wonder whether a giant striker is is not going to be enough to save them. I thought he was pretty good. I've got to. say He was excellent, but I just he, I just mean in the general terms that. He won't be enough to keep them up. Mm. I, I, I back, if he can I back, replace
0: Chris Woods three goals a season, I think he might be able to.
2: Well, yeah, true, but they—I <laughs> don't know. It, it, it's it's something that I can't quite put my finger on. But it, it, intensity is perhaps the only mm. word I can think of that is is linking to it. And we've talked before about some of their defending and some of their tracking back. And look, it was it's a good point against a mid-table team like Man United. Ho ho! Um, but look, <laughs> they arguably need to be winning games at home. And it's just also, as I say, looking at other teams and feeling that other teams are stronger than them.
0: Those games in hand, all important. They do need to turn them into victories, though, to get themselves out of that, because they're now four points away and obviously two games in hand. So very, very important for Burnley. Um, on the Manchester United side of things, Johnny, Harry Maguire was heavily criticised once again. Um and it's interesting because so many people, including those within the club, talking about a lack of of leadership. When it comes to Maguire, is he is it just has it spiraled now, Has it snowballed? Is he just an easy person to pick on?
4: It has. Uh, I think he's in a really difficult place at the moment as a as a player, because he's been in a pretty protracted dip of form. And you now see him trying to kind of do almost sort of gesture things to to get out of it and and he got in trouble against Burnley, doing exactly that, trying to challenge for a ball he didn't really need to. You know, Vout Voutkovskis Weg- isn't going to go and beat you for pace, but Harry wanted to, I guess, assert himself. I am a leader. You know, look at me, and 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 he got done, and 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 that it led to the goal, and and that's sort of been the story of his season. He's he, he, he's he's playing like someone who's who's desperately trying to cling on to um, their status a little bit instead of maybe just playing. A more natural game and that's what happens I guess when, when, when a player does suffer a real crisis of form and yeah he's become, he's become a symbol. There is a serious lack of leadership in that team not just from Harry Maguire but, but all across the pitch which is disappointing when you consider how many senior players there are in it.
2: Johnny's touched on something there that I think is quite important with Harry Maguire in that he was signed by Manchester United after Liverpool had signed Virgil van Dyke. Manchester City obviously made some good acquisitions at centre-back and then bought Ruben Diaz Harry Maguire is not that level of defender he's not that level of player he's also not got that kind of personality I don't think in terms of being a leader and maybe maybe it's our fault we in the media are kind of attributing to him he is the Manchester United Virgil van Dyke, but he's not and I think he's suffering from that arguably Manchester United still need a Virgil van Dyke or a Ruben Diaz to play alongside Harry Maguire and that's the problem is that but not just in terms of ability, but in terms of Harry Maguire's status, it's a symbolic thing that he's he's not these players and he's trying to be them and he then ends up being worse for it, I think, on the pitch. I'm not
0: sure. I mean they've got Rafa Varane.
2: so I think they think that maybe they've got Well maybe their... they
0: have. Maybe we'll see it. Maybe we'll see it. I just I just I don't know with Harry Maguire. I don't know. I, I mean he is on my list of a number of players <laughs> who, and I want to, I, I will keep saying this until the end of the season. Now, Spurs have started the overhaul of the squad, the focus on getting players out who aren't good enough. Okay, Arsenal have done the same. I want you to list them now. I can, I, no, it's easier to list the ones that I think should stay. Okay, go on. There, I, I think the last time I did this, there were seven players. Okay, see if we can I think, get to seven. Who I think should stay at Manchester United Rafa Varane, David De Gea, Cristiano Ronaldo, Jaden Sancho, um, Marcus Rashford. I can't remember if he was on it I think Paul Pogba was on it uh, yeah well he, he, quality player Bruno Fernandes Scott McTominay that, 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 Bruno Fernandes is 6 and Scott McTominay then, and, then, and then maybe 7 is Marcus Rashford Luke Shaw no best left back one of the best left no. backs in Europe He's fine he can season. go It's fine <sighs> Brutal. I wouldn't mind I wouldn't mind I wouldn't bat an eyelid if he went the others the same Start overhauling the squad. If you're meant to be one of the biggest and best clubs in the world and your goal is to win Premier League titles and Champions Leagues, they are never going to be good enough. I'm sorry. And most of them have had more than Mm. enough opportunity. Most players at big clubs get two seasons. Your first season, if you're not great, you get one more year to turn things around. If you're not good enough, you're either out on loan or you're sold. That is how ruthless it is at the top. Okay, and if you want to be at the top, that's that's exactly how you should operate. Manchester United have taken on the Arsene Wenger model, which is this is not a football club that's based around winning things. This is a family. No, it's not. Okay? Yeah. This is not about friends. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he needed that family element to get Manchester United up a notch, and I think he did well in bringing back the harmony in the team spirit, and that took Manchester United a certain way, now they need even more. They need team spirit. All the best sides in the world have it. They need togetherness, but they need a a grade A coach and they need the systems inside the club to be turned around because those also work to the detriment of whoever is coaching the club. On that point, Ralph Randnick, as an interim boss, Johnny, for me, is not doing the business. He needs to do something radical. My advice to Manchester United is stop waiting. (laughs) No, they've differed differed so much. Why on earth, Mm. given all the mistakes you've made in the past, why are we waiting until the summer? Mm. If you're Manchester United Um, and you can't prize away Ajax's manager and he doesn't want to be your coach, that says a lot in terms of his desire to do the job and in terms of you as a club. Move on and get your next best target and bring in someone who is, for the long
4: term, I get that. I just, I'm just not. Who, who? Presumably, it's Pochettino in in your in your book. You is it bringing Pochettino? Do you do you know, you can't bring him in now. I, I
0: think there's a certain level of quality there that Pochettino has that Ten Hag has as well. I wouldn't mind either of them. I've also said in the past, I wouldn't be against Brendan Rodgers. I know things are going badly for him at the moment, but I also think he's in the same bracket of coach as Ten Hag. And for me, Pochettino as well, because none of them have achieved massive greatness in the game. We're not talking about Champions League winning coaches or anything like that, but all of them have achieved a certain level of success, which for me makes them very, very good coaches.
4: Unravelling United is so hard. I know I was listening to you talking about the overhaul and the first question in my mind was, so who's doing the overhaul? You know, is, is, it, is it a director of football? Is it Ralph Rannik as a consultant? Is it? The new manager and it just i get your frustration at the status i'm just looking at it thinking i am now baffled as to how this whole thing works and is going to work i do think united need to decide on some clarity now are they prizing the director of football model above all else in which case the logical thing is to leave ranik with myrto and, and Darren fletcher as a sort of brains trust that will then do the recruitment and appoint a coach that fits in with the recruitment or are they going to go back to we're just going to get the best manager we can and you know i don't think that i really don't think the options are, are that brilliant on the market but you know i wouldn't quibble too much with the three you mentioned i just don't think that they're actually seriously at the level of guardiola and Klopp. but okay if you go and get one of them then they have to be in charge of the process and richard arnold's only just replaced ed woodward i understand the frustration it's just so hard now I think United have put so many layers of decision making in place that they almost need to unravel it and simplify everything before starting on the on the pitch. But this is um, my point, Johnny.
0: It's more dithering. I mean, you're absolutely yeah. right. Who is making all of these decisions? Who is going to be the person that makes a decision about who makes the decisions? <laughs> who will it be and when will it happen? These are the big questions about Manchester United, which have not been resolved. For me as a fan that is a massive issue I'm available call my agent I'll come in and do the job if you want me to <laughs> six figures only but the perfect the, you know when you look at Manchester United it is a mess right now knocked out of the FA Cup against Middlesbrough of course even this result against Burnley I mean on the on the pitch there is definitely a disconnect between Ralph Radnick and his players what he wants them to do and what they can achieve it feels like there's no midfield at times with Manchester United they can't control games which I've often spoken about being what the best sides can do. And now there are reports this week that the players want want Mauricio Pochettino to take over, which isn't a surprise for me because he's probably seen as more of a soft touch than Ten Hag, that's for sure. And and really, the only seven players I care about are the ones I mentioned, to be perfectly honest. The rest of them will be playing probably for, for Leeds United. I don't know, but they won't be at Manchester United <laughs> if this club has anything about it.
4: Does They're, it not make you uncomfortable, you that that we're now getting players via... You know our business via the media telling the board who they want the manager to yeah, be that's exactly. just the, such a dysfunctional football club but well,
2: that's that's the mess isn't it johnny you've touched on it there is that you've got a guy in ranik who is as we've discussed before the pull it apart and start again you know the football professor if you like and he's not got the group of players that he would like he's not necessarily got the um power with which to change that group of players and then you've got a group of players who think they can call the shots a group of players that Manchester United fans like Hugh don't think are good enough it's it's but someone <laughs> someone has to take charge and it's the big pressure is on richard arnold now as you say john he's only just in the job but he has to decide whether to back ragnick and i actually think as you've hinted at that maybe we could be in a position where you, he he stays on beyond the summer as as illogical as that seems yeah. right now because i agree with you the whole, we'll get Pochettino in. That doesn't, that won't solve anything. I don't think at Manchester United in terms of putting them back and competing mm-hmm. with Chelsea, Liverpool, and Manchester City.
0: Well, it has been a very, let's call it, interesting episode of The Game podcast today. Thank you for being with us. Remember, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism. Check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. And have a look there today uh, for that fantastic video and article investigating football hooliganism done by our very own Matt Lawton. Uh, Plenty more to come. We'll see you on Monday.